Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. Trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, your grace in our lives, the the many blessings you give us each day, the way you watch over us, protect us, sustain us, all that you've given us in the Christian life that uh, enables us to handle each and every adversity that comes our way. Father, we thank you for your word because it is absolute truth and it is the means of our sanctification. Father, we thank you for this church, for its ministry, for the impact it has in this area, for the witness of the members of this church to those in this community. Now, Father, this week we pray also for Henry Hastings down in Houston. We pray that you would just uh, help him to relax, teach the word that he might uh, be a faithful steward of the gift that you have given him. Father, Henry's a good friend, and he's studied hard and prepared well. And We pray that uh, he would have a good time, enjoyable time, faithfully feeding the uh, flock down in Baraka. Father, we also pray for uh, Holly as she flies down to uh, meet him tomorrow, that you would give her a safe trip. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we might have a greater appreciation of our of our long-term uh, growth, our long-term purpose, and what you are training us for. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Just one comment. I know some of you have seen the passion of Christ. Others are about to see it. And I've gotten several emails in the last week from uh, people, papers out there who have gone to see it and sent me their reports. And, and I received one this afternoon that was well thought out, well developed, and it summarized a lot of what other emails had said to me, other comments. So I thought I would just uh, take the time to read that to you. If you haven't seen it, at least it will give you a little bit of a understanding of what to look for and how to think critically in the process. She writes, Passion of Christ opened with Isaiah 53, 5 on the screen, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The storyline began with Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. His dread over what he was facing was evident. Satan was added to the gospel account at this point. He tempted Jesus to walk away from his mission. While not scriptural, this scene did show that Jesus had a choice. A a serpent went out from under Satan's robe to where Jesus lay face down. When he finished his prayer, Jesus stood up and crushed the serpent's head. Again, artistic license was taken in reference to Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One comment on that. They have taken that license. The, The struggle that Christ had on the cross was internal. 
as we'll study in our Who is Jesus series on Sunday morning. The struggle was internal, and that's hard to portray on the screen. So that's one of the reasons they did that. But there's a theological shift that occurs in that because the struggle that Jesus is facing is not a struggle related to the pressure of an internal sin nature, but the pressure of his finite humanity in dealing with with what he has to face. And so it by moving the center of that pressure from within himself to Satan, changes the dynamic of the test. And so that has implications for your for our spiritual life and understanding the uh just the pressures of uh humanity. Anyway, she goes on to write Jesus' words and actions according to the film were reasonably in line with the New Testament Gospels. There were two fictional scenes showing Jesus with the mother of his humanity Mary. One was as a young boy, the other as a grown man. Of course, the fiction of Jesus having long hair seems to be a part of every movie about his life, including this one. The film focuses on the physical tortures of Christ, which is very Roman Catholic. The whole thing of passion plays deals with the physical suffering as if the physical death is significant. That's my addition. She says the film focuses on the physical tortures of Christ. There was little distinction between the physical misery of the cross and the spiritual death that Christ suffered during the last three hours. In fact, you would not gather from the movie that Christ hung on the cross for six hours. The blackout of the last three hours was portrayed in the film as gathering storm clouds and wind resulting in an overcast day. There was no supernatural darkness. The earth did quake after Jesus left his body, but it was less dramatic than the quake depicted in Matthew 27:51, Artistic license was taken in the portrayal of Judas, Satan, Simon of Cyrene, and Mary, the mother of the humanity of Christ. Judas was tormented by demonic images and small children. Is Mel saying something about small children being demonic? Well, that's another subject. Until he finally hung himself. Satan Satan was an androgynous ghoul, never mind that he still is the most physically beautiful creature wrought from the hand of God. One scene depicted Satan as a loving mother cradling a baby in her arms. The baby's blanket is lowered to reveal mature back and arm hair, shades of Damien from the omen. (laughs) These uh, special effects are cheesy. The facts of the Bible are much more interesting. Simon of Cyrene is not just a man compelled to carry the cross for Jesus, as the Bible says. In the film, he's pictured as a hero. He orders the Roman soldiers to stop beating Jesus, or else he won't carry the cross any further. Mary, the mother of the humanity of Jesus, is a predominant character in this film. Only one scene involving Mary is factual. This takes place at the cross when Jesus said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. The Mary of the movie is suddenly portrayed as a spiritual leader. The disciples call her mother. John says little, but he casts looks at Mary as if he is waiting for her lead. Her empathy for Jesus is so strong that she is able to determine where he is being imprisoned through thick paving stones. Sounds like ESP to me. Anyway, there is also an emphasis on the physical blood of Christ. Mary and Mary Magdalene sponged his blood from the paving stones where he had been scourged uh, using white linen provided by Claudia, Pilate's wife. There is no basis for this scene in the Gospels. After Jesus dropped to the ground while carrying the cross, another woman brought him a cup of water and linen cloth. 
He blotted his bloody face and handed the cloth back to her. The image of his face was in the cloth. Once again, there's no biblical basis for that scene, but that is very Roman Catholic. Uh, blood sprayed out like a heavy shower of rain onto the centurion standing below when Jesus' side was pierced. The blood, red blood cell clots and water serum of John 19.34 was not portrayed. The amount of blood that poured out of Jesus' body in the movie did line up with the biblical proof that he did not bleed to death on the cross. He chose to die after he had finished paying for our sins by suffering spiritual death during the last three hours on the cross. Some of the scenes involving the physical blood of Christ are based on biblical fact, but the ones described above seem to be biased toward religious mythology. Other scenes were taken from religious art rather than scripture. Jesus' eyes turned heavenward after physically dying on the cross, and Jesus' dead body draped over Mary's lap after being removed from the cross. Jesus' resurrection is actually portrayed by the collapsing grave clothes through which his resurrection body passed. His visible hand has the hole left from the nail on the cross. Compared to other movies about the life of Christ, this movie is much more in line with the facts of the Bible. Unfortunately, the time frame of the screenplay did not lend itself to quotation of salvation passages. During a flashback, Jesus stated, John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Gospel passages could have been shown on the screen at the end of the movie, nevertheless. The Passion of Christ could open the door for many witnessing opportunities. And then she concludes by saying that many report the movie had a profound impact on them. As a Bible student, I cannot say the same. The movie did not show me anything that I had not already visualized from biblical accounts, and it fell flat on the subject of the spiritual death Jesus suffered. The truth is much more horrific than that shown on the screen. The word of God without embellishment is infinitely more powerful than any movie. And then she concludes by saying, I'm glad I saw the passion of Christ. It's part of our culture that encourages witnessing opportunities. People who have not given much thought to our Lord Jesus Christ have now been prompted to think again. And one other comment I would say back on the, uh, let me see, somebody else had made this note in reference to, um, in reference to, let me see, Jesus Oh, the earthquake, and then if you blink, you missed it. I think they, they did split the veil in the temple, but if you if you blink, you missed it. So uh, those were just some comments to bring us back to a little more biblical perspective on the movie. Well, the person of Christ is our subject for Sunday morning, not Wednesday night. Wednesday night we're dealing with Noah and the flood, so let's get back to... Noah and the flood. Hebrews 11.7. Last time we went to the New Testament to get a commentary on Noah's spiritual life. I'm inserting this between Genesis chapter 6 and Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 6 deals with God's instructions to Noah to build the ark because it's going to rain. Rain was not something that Noah was familiar with, not something he had experience with, not something he had seen. So God is telling Noah to do something that perhaps Noah did understand. Shipbuilding could have been something that was an operation in the in the antediluvian world and probably was. They had oceans and seas, and so there was very likely an, an ocean-going or sea-going uh, industry during that time, 
So that may not have been anything new, but the concept of a flood would have been new. We don't know where Noah lived in relationship to the sea, so he could have possibly lived near a water port, or he could have lived far inland where it would have been absurd to watch a man build a an ocean-going vessel of this size. Nevertheless, God's instructions to Noah fell completely outside the bounds of Noah's limited human viewpoint frame of reference and his limited human viewpoint basis of knowledge. Neither rationalism nor empiricism could have prepared Noah for what he was about to face. Neither rationalism nor empiricism could have helped him interpret the the meteorological data that was about to break upon the earth. Neither rationalism nor empiricism could have helped him comprehend or interpret the geological cataclysm that was about to burst forth on the planet. Everything that was about to happen was completely outside the frame of reference of any human being. So the issue was not faith versus rationalism or empiricism, but faith in God's revelation or faith in human viewpoint rationalism or human viewpoint empiricism. So Noah puts his trust in God and what God reveals. So when we read in the New Testament commentary on this that connects uh, the events of Genesis 6 to Noah's spiritual life, we read by faith, that is by trust in the revelation of God. And I have pointed out several times, this is not simply by the act of faith in faith. It's not faith itself but it is faith in the revelation of God. By and, and that's the operation of the faith rest drill on Noah's part. He's faced with a possible crisis, a cataclysmic judgment on planet Earth, and so he exercises faith rest drill directed toward God's revelation. And he trusts in God by faith Noah. After he was warned by God, we corrected the translation there, It is a temporal adverbial participle in the Greek after being warned by God about things not seen. In reverence, that is is an adverbial participle of manner. In respect, it should be. In respect for what God revealed, he prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. Now, that is our main verb. He prepared, literally, he constructed an ark. Kat Escuadzo, he constructed, he built an ark for the salvation of his household, by which, now that instrumental clause, by which, or through which, literally, dia plus the genitive, indicating an instrumental concept, that, that preposition modifies your main verb. He built the, or constructed the ark, by which, that is, by the construction of the ark, he condemned the world. And and then we have to look at this. This is the value when you're doing exegesis of breaking a sentence down in terms of, of diagramming it in the original language. By which he condemned the world and became. So you have in this relative clause that starts with through which, you have two finite verbs. And the two finite verbs, let me draw this out on the overhead, you have these two finite verbs. Through, let me put it this way, through which, this is your relative clause, 
through which he did two things. These are linked by your conjunction, chi or and. He did two things. First of all, he condemned the world. The second thing that takes place is, and he became an heir. Both of these are finite verbs. He became an heir. Now, it's important here, I'm not going to, I'm going to look at each of these together because they're linked in this diagram by this conjunction chi, which treats these as two equal elements grammatically in the sentence. They are subordinate to the relative uh, clause that comes following the preposition dia. That means logically the through which comes chronologically after he built the ark, the main verb of the main clause of the sentence. What does that tell you? Well, when we look here at this concept of inheritance in this in the second verb, he became an heir, that means that this is something that is subsequent to building the ark. Through He built the ark through which he became an heir. He became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now, is that faith, one, salvation faith, or two, post-salvation faith. That's the issue here. And I think, I don't remember, and I'm just not clear on it, I think I may have referenced this passage three or four weeks ago, and, and with, just off the top of my head, I'm, I, 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 I may have identified this as salvation faith, but I've gone back and worked through this exegesis, and it is clearly post-salvation faith because of the grammatical construction. He builds the ark, but before he ever built the ark, he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. 120 years before the flood and approximately 20 years before he starts constructing the ark, he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and God gives a 120-year warning of impending judgment to the nation, I mean, to the world, and Noah begins to preach the gospel. This means that Noah is saved way back here. This is when Noah first receives the imputation of righteousness. And then, subsequent to that, he has an inheritance that comes as a part of the post-salvation operation of faith. And that's what we're talking about here in Hebrews 11, is the, the illustration, the model, of two categories of inheritance, a salvation inheritance and a post-salvation inheritance, and we just see a hint of it from Romans, I mean from Hebrews 11:7, that there are even two categories of inheritance in the Old Testament. This is not something that comes along new in the New Testament, but even in the Old Testament, and it is an understanding of the doctrine of inheritance that provides the present time motivation for for the believer. He understands where God is taking him, understanding what the future holds, that what happens today is not happenstance. We all go through various kinds of categories, I mean various categories of adversity, crises, 
cataclysms, nothing in our lives on the same order as Noah. Just imagine what that must have been like. Lost absolutely everything that he had worked for, built for 500 years before he was warned about the flood. And in 500 years, you can amass a tremendous amount of personal possessions and wealth and comfort. And he was going to lose all of that. And despite what all of that, despite the fact that God was going to bring this cataclysmic judgment, he trusted God. And that is what Hebrews 11 is all, all about. And he becomes an heir of the righteousness, that is the righteousness which he had received at salvation. Uh, he becomes an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So he receives plus our salvation, plus our righteousness at salvation. And then he gets this post-salvation inheritance as a result of the exercise of the faith rest drill. So you have faith used here in Hebrews 11.7 in two ways. By means of the operation of the faith rest drill directed towards divine revelation. That's the first use of faith. That is post-salvation. And then at the end it says he becomes an heir. That becoming an heir is post-salvation. But what does he become an heir of? He becomes an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. And the righteousness which is according to faith is that righteousness that is imputed at salvation. And is that imputed righteousness at salvation that becomes the basis for post-salvation capacity righteousness. And it is that development of post-salvation capacity righteousness that becomes the basis for our inheritance blessings or what I call contingency blessings in time and in eternity. Okay, that forms the framework and the backdrop of why I'm stopping to go back through this doctrine of inheritance and heirship. I'm doing it for two reasons. Number one, we've gone through it many times, and you need to be reminded of it. It is the motivation for mature believers. Number two, it is specifically related to Noah. Only Noah and Abraham have inheritance tied to their spiritual life in the Hebrews 11 passage. And number three, as a result of studies I did here last summer, as we did our prelude into, into the spiritual gifts in the First Corinthians series, we studied the doctrine of the ascension and session of Christ. That material that I taught here, I then worked through a second time, cleaned it up, worked through it, taught it down at a, at a conference in Corpus Christi the 1st of December. When I was teaching in Corpus Christi, I was tying it into spiritual gifts, and I was relating it more to the spiritual gifts passage of Ephesians 4, uh, 8 or 7 through 13, then the First Corinthians 13 passage. And as I was cranking my way through Ephesians, I love it when the Holy Spirit starts making stuff clear to you while you're teaching it because you don't, don't have time to really, really think it all through. While I was teaching that, it was just sort of an aside, and I noticed that, that you have in, in Ephesians 4, 7, you have the giving of gifts, 
related to ascension in verse 8. We spent a lot of time on that going back through Daniel 7 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Um, it's a quote from Psalm 68:18. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And the exposition of the giving of gifts to men comes two verses later in verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 4, where Paul says he himself gave. And then we have the four gifts he's talking about, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. And he gave those four gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edification of the body of Christ, that is spiritual growth, oikonomos, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to lios, there, the word for maturity or completion. So the purpose of the giving of the ascension is to give gifts. The purpose of the giving of gifts is to bring us to maturity in the body of Christ, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we hit the word pleroma there, which is uh, focuses on the end result of spiritual maturity. And there's a connection there between Talaios and Pleroma. Now, at the same time that I was teaching that in, this gives you a hint as to how the Holy Spirit works to pull all this stuff together. At the same time I'm teaching that in 1 Corinthians, I had just begun teaching the series on who is Jesus on Sunday morning here. And I'm also preparing to teach on who is Jesus in Kiev and, and Christology there. And I'm cranking through the passages we'll get to in the next couple of weeks in uh, in our Sunday morning series on Christ, on how he grew and mature. And then I had to prepare to teach it down at Barak, and so I decided to do the Ascension and Session material down there. And I said, I'm going to de- develop out all this Pleroma stuff to Pleroma and maturity and how that works. And that's what I covered some last Wednesday night, tying this together for you, because you've heard all the other background stuff, but I had never pulled these other threads together for you. So I want to review it again, and I've restructured the doctrine. Last time I had like a 23-point doctrine on inheritance. That's unmanageable. So this time I've broken it down into three parts. Okay, I've renumbered them, and we've got three parts, and we're going to look at the first part. Doctrine of Inheritance, Part 1, Christ's Qualification for Inheritance. Now, this is what I covered last time, so I'm just going to do a forced march through these first seven or eight points to bring us back to where we were. The first point just simply focused on the Greek vocabulary, kleronomos, the noun for inheritance, which means a possession or a property, kleronomeo, which is the verb, which means to possess or to receive something as one's own possession or to obtain something. It can be a birthright, as in Galatians 4.30, or property received as a, as a gift or property received as a reward. Yes. Oh, screen's not... Okay, now you can see it. Our property, uh, it can be a birthright, number one, Galatians 4.30. Point two, it could be property received as a gift in contrast to a reward. And see, these first two relate to what we receive as a birthright in terms of our sonship, our royal sonship, members of the royal family. The third way in which Kleronomao uh, is used is in terms of property received on condition of obedience, 1 Peter 3, 9. 
So there's a difference between property received as a gift or property received on condition of obedience. And then the fourth way in which it's used is a reward based on meeting certain conditions. So there's a difference between a reward and a gift. A, a gift is not earned. A reward is something that you do something for. So that sets the stage for our two categories of inheritance. Then we went to Hebrews 1-2, Christ is the heir of all things, appointed by God. Point number three, Christ's inheritance is based on his successful completion of his strategic victory on the cross. That's the connection from the ascension. He goes to heaven, he's recognized, glorified by God, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and is elevated in authority over the angels, Hebrews 1-4 having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And I ask the question, how did he inherit a more excellent name than they? By his strategic victory on the cross. That is not his birthright. That was the result of something he did, an accomplishment. Then we went to the fourth point, Christ's character in his humanity was developed through, quote, learning obedience through the things he suffered. He didn't just automatically have it. In his humanity, he had to mature just like you and I have to mature. He has to go through all the same kinds of of petty garbage in life, dealing with all the muck. And for him, you know, we step through this stuff, but we have sin nature, so there's an affinity with the cosmic system. But he doesn't have that inherent sin nature, and affinity for the cosmic system. So he's walking through the muck of everyday life, and he really understands what the muck is all about. We don't necessarily recognize it, but he did, and he had to learn obedience through the things he suffered. Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things. That's his deity in bringing our... uh, in bringing many sons to glory, uh, excuse me, for it was fitting for him, that is, God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the divine plan of salvation, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Teleao again. Jesus is perfected just in the same way that Jesus Christ gives spiritual gifts to the body of Christ that we may be brought to the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, a complete man. So Jesus goes through the same process of completion. It's a verb in Hebrews 2.10, the noun in Ephesians 4.13. But just as Jesus had to be brought to completion through suffering, we're brought to completion through suffering. Then we looked at Ephesians 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Those two verses are key to understanding the dynamics of the spiritual life of the humanity of Jesus Christ and why it is the precedent for your spiritual life and my spiritual life. He had to go through the suffering, and he was perfected or matured or brought to completion through that process. Okay, then the next few points we'll just summarize very quickly. Point five, he advanced spiritually through learning doctrine, living under the filling of the Spirit, and producing capacity righteousness. That's the pattern he established. 
Point six, Christ's character is further defined as the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 and 23, and Ephesians 5.9. Those are the character qualities, the virtues of the spiritual life. And point seven, his impeccability, that is, because he was sinless in that process, qualified him to go to the cross as our Redeemer. That's the soteriological purpose. But secondary purposes in Christ's life was to be the model for the spiritual life of the church age, and so point number eight, his spiritual growth qualified him for his inheritance, and it also set the pattern for our spiritual life. But the point of point eight was his spiritual growth, the process through suffering, qualified him for his inheritance, Psalm 2.8, Hebrews 1.2. Now, that brings us to the second element of the doctrine of inheritance. The first part establishes the pattern in Jesus Christ. The second element here is going to connect the common inheritance of all believers in the royal family of God. So the next set of points, let me see how many do I have now. Ten points in the second section. We covered the first two last time. So all of this is review. We spent 35 minutes in review. But you just have to have this in your head. You, I, I, I mean, it's got to be review, 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 or we'll lose the context. Common inheritance for all believers. Point one, our heirship, our inheritance, is based on adoption and sonship. Therefore, inheritance is fundamentally related to the doctrine of positional truth, Galatians 3.29 and Galatians 4.1. But the passage we'll look at is in Romans 8.16 and 17. And the argument in Romans 8.16 and 17 is that if you are the father's son, that is, if you're a member of the royal family of God, then you are the father's heir. If you're a member of the royal family of God, you've been adopted by God the Father at the instant of salvation into the royal family of God, you are the Father's heir, Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that is our human spirit, that we are children of God. That is our possession at salvation, one of the 39 irrevocable uh, blessings that God gives us at the instant of salvation. And then verse 17, which is the verse we always have a little fun with. And if children, if and we are children, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And this is where I always insert the little fun sentence about a woman without her man is nothing and how that's punctuated. And if you can punctuate it two ways, a woman, without her, man is nothing. That makes man the subject of the verb is and has one meaning. Or you can punctuate it, a woman, without her man, is nothing. In this case, woman is the subject, and a woman is nothing unless she has her man. So where you place the commas changes the meaning of the sentence. And I always remind you that in Romans 8:17. There were no commas in the original Greek. They didn't have commas. They, they structure it by grammar. And the grammar is indicated by the use not of chi, which joins two uh, equal words or phrases, 
But what you have is the use of the post-positive conjunction, de, which indicates a subordinate clause. So it should be punctuated. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, that's your first category of heirship, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him. Now, that's where we get our connection. How did Christ grow and mature? Through suffering. How do we grow and mature? Through suffering. Now, the way most people read this is we think of this in terms of major suffering. We think in terms of this, of what Christ went through in the Passion, using the, with the popular movie right now. His suffering, the heavy-duty physical torture that Jesus Christ went through on the way to the cross. But that is reading something into the text that shouldn't be there. Because from Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 5.8, we've seen that the day-to-day life, the adversity, everyday decisions, the regular testing that Jesus Christ endured in his humanity as he grew up, being tested in all points as we are, yet without sin, indicates the kind of suffering we're talking about here. This is not talking about being a co-martyr with Jesus Christ. This is talking about living in the cosmic system and suffering the consequences of allegiance to God in the midst of the cosmic system. In other words, applying doctrine, divine viewpoint, and decision-making on a day-in and day-out basis and suffering the consequences of that while we're living in the cosmic system. And when we do that, there is spiritual growth. If indeed we suffer with him, is saying that if indeed we're following the same pattern of, of spiritual growth through suffering that Jesus Christ went through. This is not some, I'm just, I just warn people, there's always somebody with a martyr or asceticism trend out there who wants to go suffer for Jesus. And uh, that's not what the kind of thing that this is talking about. It's talking about going through the normal course of adversity in life and applying doctrine to handle it so that we don't convert the outside pressure of adversity into the inside pressure of stress in the soul. Remember, adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional, and the way you avoid stress is by handling each and every decision by application of doctrine. And so this is what this passage is talking about. And by doing so, by following the same pattern of obedience and adversity that Jesus pioneered for us, we then qualify to be an heir. The problem with this verse is that if you take it the way it's normally punctuated, then being an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ is dependent upon suffering with him, not faith alone in Christ alone. So it's a violation of grace. You're not just saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You're saved by faith alone plus suffering with Jesus. And that's a work salvation. So we have to repunctuate the verse to avoid a conflict with grace, and that sets up our understanding of the fact that there are now two, point number two, two classifications of inheritance. You're an heir of God by virtue of your being adopted into the royal family of God. You are an heir of Christ if and only if you advance spiritually to spiritual maturity. So then point three, the condition for being a joint heir of Christ is suffering with him. That is, as I've already explained it, advancing in your spiritual life through the use of the ten spiritual skills, the stress busters, the ten problem-solving devices to handle decision-making, adversity, and the pressures of either prosperity or adversity in the Christian life. So then point four. 
All of that we did last week. Point four, airship of God. Let's look at this category first and foremost. Airship of God, this is what every believer has in common, is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. That's what it goes back to. Galatians 3.29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you belong to Christ, first class condition, if and you do, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. We are children of Abraham by faith. We are not of the physical seed, but we have followed him in faith, so we are his spiritual seed. And therefore, we are heirs according to promise. That is, by virtue of our position in Christ. That's what it means to belong to Christ, Galatians 3.29. This is the same thing that is stated in Romans 4.13 and 14. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. See, it's not through the seed through the law. That is, physical descendancy did not guarantee uh, being an heir. It has to do with that spiritual descendancy. It's through the righteousness of faith. That is righteousness that comes as a result of faith, the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness at the instant of salvation. Verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. So in verse 14, Paul is using a reductio ad absurdum argument. He's going for the contrary. He says, If... Those who are of the law are heirs, that is, if inheritance comes through physical generation, then faith is made void. Faith doesn't count. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're just a, a Jew. And that makes the promise no effect. But see, Galatians 3.29 says we're Abraham's offspring by faith. So heirship is according to promise and faith not according to the law or physical generation. So that backs up our point number four. Heirship of God is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham. Remember, there's three provisions in the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. And my good friend, Dr. Tommy Ice, points out that there are 23 distinct references to the Abrahamic covenant between Genesis 12 and Genesis 50. We will deal with that when we get to that section of Genesis. 23 distinct repetitions of the Abrahamic covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons. 23. Do you think God's saying something there? And in every one of them, there are slightly different Emphases on the different provisions, some provisions, some of the uh, rehearsals or, or repetitions of the covenant emphasize God's blessing to the Jews. Others emphasize his blessing to the Gentiles. Every one of them emphasizes the land, every one of them, the land. Land, seed, blessing. Every time you hear the Abrahamic covenant, you ought to think land, seed, blessing. In that order, land is priority. That's why the Jews have a right to the land in Israel. God gave it to them in the Abrahamic covenant. It is a grace provision. So inheritance is based on the grace promise of the Abrahamic covenant. It doesn't come through the land. It comes through the second part, the seed. The seed is identified as Jesus Christ. So that's the basis for inheritance. Okay. 
Point five. Airship demands eternal life because the Son must have the same life as the Father. To inherit, we must have eternal life because the inheritance is eternal. And this is seen in Titus 3, 5 through 7. Titus 3, 5 is the key verse for regeneration in the New Testament aside from John 3, 3 through 5. Titus 3, 5 is, that explains it precisely. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That is specifically church age dynamics. No other age has the Holy Spirit. That, verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The purpose for justification by grace is directed towards being an heir of eternal life. So heirship demands eternal life. Because the Son must have the same life as the Father. That's point number five. That means, point number six, that heirship means to share the destiny of Christ. As part of our inheritance as members of the royal family, we share the destiny of Christ. He has an eternal destiny, and we share it in his election. That is part of what it means to be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, Romans 8 29. Christ has that eternal destiny. We are given that same destiny. This is also seen in Ephesians 4, 11, and 1 Peter 1, 3. Let's look at those two verses. Ephesians 1, 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, and that is the, that is the aorist passive indicative of kleronameo, our verb for inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. We have a possession. Aorist tense, meaning we already have it as believers. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And First Peter 1, three, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So our heirship involves a sharing of the inheritance, that living hope is our future confident expectation. Once again, the words hope, living hope, and inheritance both relate to that sixth stress buster, that personal sense of our eternal destiny. That is our confident expectation. We have a future hope that we'll see is defined in 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5 as imperishable and undefiled. So point six, heirship means to share the destiny of Christ, leading to point seven. Inheritance, then, is both a present reality and a future possession. It is both a present reality and a future possession. First Peter 1, 4, and 5, and Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says that we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. See, it's a present possession. Ephesians 1.11, which we just looked at, says also, We have obtained, aorist tense, it's already ours, present possession, 
an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. In him, positional truth, our position in Christ. You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. That's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does to every believer at the instant of salvation is to seal us. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Twice in that verse you have the phrase in him indicating positional truth. So in him we are sealed by the Holy Spirit who is given, verse 14, as a pledge of our inheritance. So the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit secures us in the family of God, in Christ, but which emphasizes the present possession of a future reality, and that future reality is defined as an inheritance with a view toward the redemption of Christ's own possession of the praise of his glory. So point number eight, I mean point number seven, Inheritance is both a present reality and a future possession. Point number eight, heirship means eternal security, an inheritance that's undefiled. That's the passage we just read in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, plus 1 Peter 1, 4, 4 and 5. Airship means eternal security, an inheritance that is undefiled. First Peter 1, 4 through 5, one of my favorite passages, we've received an, we are to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. Notice we're protected by the power of God, not by your sinlessness, not by your morality, not by your lifestyle. We are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that through faith there is a reference to, uh, Faith at salvation. Point number nine, tying these last two or three points together. God the Holy Spirit then is the down payment on our inheritance. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance. And that is related to uh, all of the ministries of God the Holy Spirit to the believer at salvation. Ephesians 1.14, Galatians 4.6. And then finally, point 10, the common inheritance of all believers, and that's what these points have related to, the second division. The common inheritance of all believers includes a resurrection body, eternal life, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, the old things have passed away, eternity in heaven. We could add no more sin nature. All of that is the inheritance that every believer will have in heaven, reserved for us, imperishable and undefiled. However, there is a problem in understanding inheritance passages. And this takes us to the third part of the doctrine of inheritance, distinctions in the inheritance. What's the problem? The problem is that there are some passages which speak of inheritance as a permanent possession based on faith alone and Christ alone. These are the passages we've just looked at in the last division, Galatians 3.29, Galatians 4.1, 1 Peter 1.4 and 5, Titus 3.7, Ephesians 1.11-14, and all the other passages we just looked at. But there are other passages which clearly speak 
of inheritance as an acquisition or a reward. If inheritance means eternity in heaven, then in these passages it is clear that some people can never be saved and others would lose their salvation. And we see this in two passages. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, if that is, if inheritance there is talking about what we all possess and is equivalent to the idea of eternal life and salvation, then it's making us the statement that an immoral or an impure person or someone who's covetous doesn't have an inheritance. Period. So if you covet, that is, if you're lustful, if you go to the store or you're watching an advertisement on TV and you have a little materialism lust, you just voided your salvation. And we're not talking about committing genocide here. We're not committing have it, talking about going out and having a sodomite marriage. We're not talking about bestiality or pedophilia or child abuse. We're talking about just looking at television and, and looking at that that technology ad for for uh, uh, some new television or stereo or looking at furniture, whatever it may be, you say, you know, I really want that. Well, when you get into materialism lust, that would void your salvation, according to Ephesians 5.5. You become covetous. We don't even need to deal with the immoral or impure part of the thing. Okay, Colossians 3.24 reiterates that idea, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And that verse clearly states it's a reward, not a gift. Reward is for what you do. This is why, you know, every every church I've been in comes up with this problem that down in prep school, well, we don't want to give them rewards because that emphasizes works. Well, let's understand some things. You get some things by grace, kids, other things by rewards. There's nothing wrong with the concept. It is a biblical concept to be motivated by rewards. That's a personal sense of our eternal destiny. So when you look at these verses, the only way to handle the problem is to recognize, point two, there are two categories of inheritance. The first category is inherit salvation, Hebrews 1.14, and those are all the blessings related to being a member of the royal family of God, adoption in the family of God. That's the inheritance that comes from sonship. Category two of inheritance is the inheritance of the kingdom. Such passages as Ephesians 5, 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, and Galatians 4, uh, 18 and 19, 20, dealing with the, those who practice the works of the flesh shall not inherit the kingdom. Two categories of inheritance. Again, we're back to our passage in Romans 8:17. If children heirs also heirs of God, comma that's the first category, and category two, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, in order that we may be also glorified with Him. And Galatians 4:7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. That is a mature son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So, uh, Galatians 4:7 is talking about being an heir of God. And then we have our two categories in Romans 8.17. So let's tie all of this together. From the first 
set of points dealing with Christ's inheritance, the second set dealing with royal family inheritance, emphasis on Romans 8.17, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6.9-10. We must conclude point three. Just as Christ inherits the kingdom in Psalm 2, 8 through 9, due to his loyalty and his faithful obedience to God the Father, along with Hebrews 1, 8, so will the joint heirs with Christ. That's the pattern. Jesus inherits as a result of his faithful obedience to God, so will the joint heirs with Christ because of their faithful obedience to God. Thus, point number four. Thus the kingdom has been promised to those who love God, and not all believers love God. A lot of believers emote, they have sentimental feelings, but that is not how the Bible expresses love. Love to God is expressed in the Bible as obedience to God, John fourteen twenty one to 24. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the kingdom is promised to those who love God, Loving God is related to learning his word, making that a priority, and applying it consistently, following the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ and his spiritual growth. The negative illustration is Esau. Esau is the physical son, the firstborn in terms of chronology, the firstborn of the twins that that, uh, born to uh, Jacob, or excuse me, born to Isaac, and Rebekah, Esau and his brother Jacob. Esau is first, Jacob is second. And Esau sells his birthright. Hebrews twelve sixteen. There, there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Esau is a picture of the failure believer, the believer who has all of this potential in Christ and gives it up for the pleasures of the world, gives it up to... to uh, feed the lust of his sin nature, and that is Esau. This is not a commentary on his salvation. I don't know whether he was actually saved or not. It is a commentary on the fact that he did not have any sense of his spiritual destiny. He sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Now, in terms of the analogy, is Esau still a child of of Isaac. Yes, he's not out of the family. He's still in the family. But he has lost the double portion blessing of the firstborn. That went to his brother Jacob. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. He lost forever that inheritance blessing. This is the same thing that can happen uh, to the believer. They can follow the pattern of Esau and be a failure in the Christian life. This comes by negative volition, and negative volition is not defined as hostility to the truth. Negative volition is defined as apathy to the truth. Apathy to the truth is demonstrated by not making it a priority. Apathy is demonstrated by letting other things in life uh, invade your time to take in doctrine. No matter what it is, no matter how important it may be, when you look around at how much time you spent in the last week studying the Word and, and letting the Word dominate your thinking, and you realize that you were just overwhelmed by all the pressures of work, family, life, and everything else, then you're following the path of Esau. It doesn't mean, negative volition doesn't mean you're hostile. 
Negative volition means that you're putting your emphasis on something other than the word and other than the message. And this happens in so many people's lives. I can't tell you how many people who've been going to church for years and years and years, sitting in a doctrinal church with sound teaching, and they have deluded themselves into thinking they're positive. And then a major crisis comes along in their life, and all of a sudden they put the emphasis on the man rather than the message. They put their emphasis on their emotions. They put their em- emphasis on on how they feel. They put their emphasis on their family or their friends. And they begin, and what that demonstrates is that for years there has been a spiritual erosion in their, in their life because they became complacent and apathetic. They might have volumes of notes in their Bible doctrine notebook. They might have never missed a Bible class in five years, but somewhere along the line they became impressed with the form of godliness and they lost a sense of the power, the real love for the Lord Jesus Christ, the real love for the truth. And the love for the truth is always going to be manifest in your love for the Word of God and whoever teaches the truth, the Word of God. And that's your focus. It's not on personality. It's not on a place. It's not on a particular church. But it's always going to be on an on the truth itself because you are in love with the mind of Christ and the thinking of Christ. And otherwise, you fall into negative volition, and the next thing you know, you fail the big test. And that happens and is the tragedy in many people's spiritual life. That was not the tragedy of, of Noah. He hit the big test, and he passed on and passed through it, and he receives the inheritance which is of righteousness, which is according to faith. Next time, we'll come back and we'll press on by looking at Genesis 7 and the events of the flood itself with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the truth of it. We pray that we might keep our focus on our personal sense of destiny, those eternal rewards, and the fact that this is a training ground for our future rule and reign with you in eternity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.